Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. And this episode, we're going to be having a look at high winds again. We're going to be looking at how to deal with high winds at sea. I've got to say, of the little mini-series of, um, of podcasts looking at high winds, this is the one that I was really looking forward to the most. It's interesting, of course, talking, as we did last time, about dealing with high winds at the mooring. And, of course, we're going to talk about dealing with high winds at anchor and ashore. But, of course, <laughs> the thing that everyone wants to know about is how do you deal with the big storms and things when you're at sea? It's the number one question I always get asked whenever we do question and answer things. Any kind of public uh, public space, it's always what's the worst storm you've ever been in? What's the highest winds you've seen? What's the biggest wave you've seen? So I've got a few of those stories which I'll, uh, I'll share with you in this one. But the idea is to have a look at you know, where can you get the best information to keep yourself, your crew, your vessel safe when you're out uh, in the middle of the ocean. I think something that we've discussed previously is that you have to have this stuff like downloaded and fully uh, <laughs> fully assimilated into your sea seamanship if you're going to be going out onto the ocean uh, thinking that you're going to kind of get a get a book out and start thumbing through it. You can you can do that of course and it's never silly not to, you know, to have to have books on the on the boat that you can thumb through, but don't think that during the emergency you're going to start having some new ideas. A lot of things that you need to implement, of course, need preparation and time for fixtures and fittings to be checked and secured and, and everything else before you get going. So let's see if we can transfer some of the stuff that's at the front of my brain when I start thinking about um, when I start thinking about uh, uh, being at sea in a big storm or something, and see if we can get that so it's inside your brains by the end of this uh, story. So. Um, what are we talking about when we're talking about high winds? Well, I think the first place to start with really is, uh, are you in the right boat? Because different boats are going to have different attitudes to what constitutes a, uh, a big blow. Now, I can tell you that the best possible boat to be in, from my recent observations, is the boat that was used in the film All Is Lost with Robert Redford. Because that boat with a little bit of careful shepherding and husbandry, I think that boat could literally go through anything. I, I just did a, a reaction video for the film All Is Lost over on the Mariner YouTube channel. I'd never seen the film before, and if you if you haven't caught up with that film, I'd say it is worth a look, but you're gonna be the absolute bore of the party if you sit there with your sailing knowledge um, critiquing everything that happens in the movie but don't worry I've done it for you I sat down it's about an hour and a half that movie and I think in total our take for that was like a hundred uh, uh, two two hours 40 something like that um, because obviously I had to talk through all the different things with the movie pause but um, that boat the way that that's depicted it has flotation characteristics far beyond anything I've ever seen it has uh, the ability to be brought under control during a storm with a power anchor step from set from the stern that's right you heard that right he sets a power anchor from the stern um quite incredible but um you know they're kind of 35 foot 40 boat something rather that robert redford's character is on in that film um it's just at that crossover point where it's the kind of boat that many people have it's going to have some kind of v berth at the front with a small anchor locker ahead of it it's going to have like a little heads over to port and a little cubby hanging place over to star but it's going to have in the main salon two bunks going down either side that can be used as cities and some kind of folding table in the middle 
and then towards the back of the main salon it's going to have like a bit of a kitchen area and a bit of a nav area probably with a little tuck away quarter berth underneath one of these seats in the cockpit and then on deck uh, the cockpit has one big cockpit locker on one side we all know that boat it's like a cal 30 or something like that um it's the kind of boat that people are likely to end up having 35 to 40 foot if it's a little bit older it fits into many different um, budgets um but when it gets out there on the water the fundamentals of that boat the way that it was put together the way that it was imagined by the designer the way that its design was tweaked to make it more sea kindly or stronger or whatever it was all those elements are going to be immutable when you get out onto the water whatever it is it is and if it's a shoal draft bilge keeler and you're out in 40 knots then you're going to feel that it's a shoal draft bilge keeler if it's some race boat kind of like the ones that we have here at spartan with big deep keels and even ballast tanks and all the rest of it you're going to have that available as you go into a storm so knowing your own boat and knowing what it can take on is an absolutely critical foundational layer of this kind of um, discussion you know how to deal with high winds at sea is the subject matter here first thing is do we have the right piece of equipment now those 1970s early 80s fiberglass boats are unbelievably strong i think if anybody's had to do any work on one of those have you ever seen one cut up in a boatyard or something at that early point in the production of fiberglass boats they really didn't have a uh, a full understanding of exactly how much material needed to go into each build so they just kind of put a dash extra in every one and uh, you end up with boats which are unbelievably strong so in terms of the strength of the boat we could say that older fiberglass boats may be stronger than some newer boats but we'd have to also understand how strong the laminate is um, after 30 40 years has gone past we also need to look at the fact that some modern boats are now in a position where i think x yachts are actually certified by bureau veritas to go out in a force uh, force 10 so a force 10 you know that's the kind of weather that can spring up around you you know kind of unexpectedly suddenly you're going into something you think is going to be a gale like force 8 and then it just builds and builds and suddenly you're in force 10 so knowing that your boat is is good to go in that is a very important thing i know that with the golden globe race that don mcintyre organized a couple of years ago um, the one which was won by jean-luc vandenheed um, the boats that were going into that the category of boats that was allowed were boats that kind of range between about 32 and 38 feet i think and all of the manufacturers for all of those boats which were okayed by the race authority they all made sure to you know elucidate all of the potential competitors that these boats were never intended to go and do that kind of work now as it was although there were knockdowns although there were issues nobody nobody was lost no boats were lost so can they go and do more than they were expected to do absolutely i think that it's uh, fair to say i know that john luke vandenheed made watertight bulkheads inside his boat i think that where that division is between the main salon and the forward part of the boat whether it be heads or uh, cupboards or berth or whatever it is I think he made that into a watertight bulkhead and then I think also another one um, on the after edge of the uh, cabin as it comes down into the um, uh, down by the sides of the companionway that was secured there so there was a watertight compartment aft beneath the cockpit another uh, compartment in the center of the boat and then a forward door that could be closed through to the front of the boat so the structure of the boat can take it but it's probably going to need a couple of extra things now if you're looking at your little boat and thinking could i take this into the uh to, into the the wide blue ocean um the answer is probably yes and as long as nothing too untoward 
goes wrong, then it'll probably be fine. Now, if you've been following the Rare Nautical Reads podcast, which seems to be getting a lot of listens, it's uh, it's going very, very well there. Um, the first book that I read on that is called Desperate Voyage, and he sails across the Pacific in a 29-footer, and one which is in no way set up in a, a modern fashion with you know, electric bilge pumps and all the kind of things that we might expect. And uh, in a way, he makes it, you know, he, he <laughs> it's quite the story if you haven't heard that already. My goodness me, I've um, it made the storyline of uh, All Is Lost with Robert Redford look very, very um, benign and uh, everyday humdrum sailing. What that guy went through, John Coldwell, unbelievable. But uh, you'll have to pick that up on on rare nautical reads to see what I'm talking about. But can you cross an ocean in a small boat? Absolutely, of course you can. What would be the characteristics of a boat that would be able to do that? Well, as we said already, watertight bulkheads, very, very important. If you do suffer some kind of damage, then you know that certain sections of the boat um, are separated from other sections. Normally, of course, where the windows are in the main salon and where the big companionway and the washboards are, that's the most likely area that's going to end up getting damaged. So if the lazarette area the area under the cockpit and the area up forward in the forecastle if that's sealed off then the boat will float uh, regardless now as i say if you've got robert redford's boat if you haven't seen that film there's a bit in that where he's wandering around inside his boat getting his last few possessions off it as it sinks sorry spoiler alert the boat sinks um the, the water's like up by his elbows somewhere and the boat's still floating so i say fantastic flotation characteristics but i guess in in all seriousness that does bring up an issue which is that um I hope everyone realizes all monohulls sink, right? That's uh, unless they have some kind of internal flotation secured inside them, some kind of sealed off area of the boat or something which you yourself have put into the boat to make it so it doesn't sink from an etchel right up to, um, you know, Grand Soleil 45. If it gets a lot of water inside it, it's sinking because you've got, of course, you've got the flotation, which may be caused by the core of the fiberglass if it's got balsa in there or it's got foam in there there's some flotation there and of course all the cushions and the the things which are inside it have their own displacement characteristics but ultimately there is potentially thousands of kilos thousands of pounds of lead or concrete or steel on the bottom of the boat and when that um when that starts to get added to with a load of water coming in through the side of the boat there's nothing left to keep the boat above the water so once displacement is uh, is overcome and uh, there was too much water inside and the boat's going down. And we see this in the book 117 Days Adrift with Morris and Marilyn Bailey. They strike a submerged object very gently on a very kind of placid uh, Pacific day. And uh, suddenly there's water inside the boat and Morris gets in and tries to start working out where it's coming from. But it's coming be- from behind the woodwork uh, in the galley area, I seem to remember. And he just can't, can't get to it to father it, to block it. And very quickly, by the time his search is uh, is over, he's realized that the water's up by their knees and that this boat is going down. And indeed it does. And they end up, as the title of the book says, uh, at sea, f- adrift in a life raft for 117 days and survive, which is amazing. But um, when they start getting water inside, they go down. And how much water? I think I mentioned it in the reaction video on YouTube. Um, if you do it in metric, uh, a 2.5 centimeter hole Uh, one meter below the waterline will let in 10,000 liters of water per hour. So if you do it in imperial or whatever those other measurements are called, um, a one inch hole three feet below the waterline will let in two and a half thousand gallons an hour. So the way of looking at that is what's the internal volume of the boat. And that's something which if you have a commercial boat, they will come and actually like work out the 
volumetric measurement of of how large the inside of your boat is. It's uh, it's the registered tonnage. It's a it's a volumetric measurement. That amount starts to give us an idea of like how long will it take to sink this boat. When you start to realize, say something like our Volvo 60, it's um, I think it's 30 30 gross tons that boat. So it's internal capacity of about 30,000 liters, give or take, and uh, a one inch hole, a 2.5 centimeter hole, one meter below the waterline, which is about the maximum that any part of the hull on those boats go down to. Really, it's about two feet, about 60 centimeters. But let's let's stick with the numbers we've got. If one of those boats has got a one inch hole, uh, one meter below the waterline, three feet below the waterline, in three hours, it'll let in 30,000 liters of water. Now, the thing is, you're not going to have to have the entirety of the inside of the boat full to the very brim before it goes down. That'll happen below that. But even with a big 60-foot boat like that, with just basically like a, a hose from a sink or something off and that thing just leaking in, three hours and it's down. If it's a big hole, then of course within the hour it can go and anybody who's been involved in an emergency in their life knows full well that um, emergencies, uh, time starts to dilate and suddenly you realize that uh, you've been involved trying to re-rig the boat or get the rudder sorted out or whatever your emergency was that you've been at it for four hours and you didn't even even realize so you got to be very cautious when a lot of water starts coming into the boat of realizing how serious that can become very quickly now how do we offset this in the design of a boat that's meant to go out into the deep ocean with big winds and big waves of course we have bilge pumps now having bilge pumps and those bilge pumps being able to stay ahead of problems is something worse meant worth mentioning now it's worth mentioning every time we mention bilge pumps because most of the electric bilge pumps which are put onto boats these days are just a massive compromise between the requirement to have a pump and the amount of space and the amount of complication that the designer and the manufacturer are willing to put into creating a solution for the problem of there being water in the boat. Now, what would be the best possible pump to have to you know, give you give you the solution you want when there's 5,000 litres of water floating around in your boat. Now, how much is that? It's like 1,250 gallons of water inside the boat. You're 30 minutes into the problem. Okay, how do you then get that back out? Well, you're going to flick on that switch and hopefully it's going to pump out. But that's not the best solution. The best solution would be if there's some big engine-driven pump which is going to move huge quantities of water through big bore pipes and sling it over the side of the boat and then smaller pumps that are going to take that level right down to the being like a quarter of an inch inside the boat, right? That would be the best solution. So clearly in that scenario, having plastic, and they are inside the mechanicals of a bilge pump, most of them are just plastic, right? A plastic pump with a little hose on it and a little wire. What's that going to do to help you? The square root of FA, right? You have to get very smart with this. If you have a tiny little pump, those very, very small ones which they sell, it may go down nicely into the bottom of some sump underneath the engine bay or tuck away in a corner in the bow or something, but it's going to have no use whatsoever in the event of lots of water coming in. The rating on the side of the pump is the rating free flow with the no pipe on it and uh, full voltage and no blockage. Okay, so in the event of the boat starting to take on a lot of water, unless you are very smart in your planning, your batteries are immediately going underwater. They're probably quite low down in your boat as they are in mine. As soon as those terminals get covered, they're cross-connected and they're going to heat right up and they're going to, if they don't blow themselves apart, they'll just discharge entirely into the water. So the voltage is already down. So that pump's now not doing what you expected it to do. If it's got a black backflow valve in the system, which it should 
probably have, then it's going to be a retardation to the water exiting. When you've got that kind of centrifugal pump, which those little fan pumps are, you know, you look in the bottom of it, it's got the little kind of fan going around. All it's doing is just slinging water out using centrifugal force. And the centrifugal force relies on there being a big cross section to the outgoing pipe because there's very little pressure. It's just basically like momentum. Okay. So um, if you've got any hose attached to it, if you've got any reductions in the hose, if you've gone from the, you know, the half inch hose or the five eighths hose that the manufacturer says you can take, but you had to get it through this little thing and you had to connect a doodah and what's the narrowest section on that line of pipe. There was no point buying 20 foot of five eighths pipe. If you've got a reducer in there somewhere that takes it down to half inch or three eighths or whatever it is, because that now is the flow rate of your pump. So voltage down pumps, not working pipe diameter could be a problem if it's not absolutely as the manufacturer expected any kind of lift on the pipe a lot of these pumps will say that it will pump up 10 feet or 10 meters or whatever it is but obviously there's a, a, a relationship between how much it's able to pump and how high that water head is against the pump because it's just momentum that it's slinging the water out of the pump with and there's only a certain amount of force that it can overcome in the pipe so um, if it has to go from your bilge and up to some kind of discharge on the side of the boat, that needs to be calculated into how much this pump can pump. If you haven't got exactly 13 volts on your batteries at the point where we start having to pump the bilges for our lives, we've got to coordinate that if there's any interruption in the pipe, any kind of narrowing. So very quickly, you can start to realize that basically, even if you have a pump that says 2,500 GPM on the side of it, 2,500 gallons per minute, that kind of pump it can start to sling a huge amount of water. Sorry, I wish, my goodness me, gallons per minute. That would be a good pump, that one. Two and a half thousand gallons per hour. If we have a pump that says two and a half thousand gallons per hour on the side of it, it's going to have to have full voltage, very little head that it's working against, no constrictions in the pipe, and it needs to, of course, have no rubbish. The strum box, the thing which stops uh, detritus from your bilges getting into the pump and slowing or stopping it. The strum box has got to be good. Everything's got to be working perfectly and it'll just stay ahead of a one inch hose that's come off somewhere beneath the body of the boat. If you've got something like a proper hole in the side of the boat and it's got a cross-sectional area of 100 square centimeters, what exactly have you got on your boat that's going to pump that out? Okay. A, a, a small boat can have a hole of that size. Imagine like a basketball size hole inside of your boat. What are you, what are you going to do with that? It's uh, almost impossible to pump it with uh, what the things that are put into modern boats. So knowing your boat, its limitations, where it's at, what the builder thought it could do, what other owners have done with them, how old is your boat, what's the condition of the materials on the boat, has it had any developments which have made it more suited to offshore sailing like watertight bulkheads, has it still got standard bilge pumps or has it got something better which somebody has put in there? All of these things need to be considered. And then, of course, come the end of it, you still need to have a boat which has got all of the life-saving gear, all of the equipment that is required by certainly all the race authorities that when we join races, all of the commercial coding authorities, they all ask for the same stuff. There's, there's different levels to it, of course, but, you know, life rafts, flares, uh, grab bags, AIS in the life jackets, EPUB on board the boat, maybe a SART, all these things, they're not optional. They're just things that you hope you never use. And they are the same piece of equipment if you're on a 60 or 80 foot boat like we've got, or you're on a 30 or 40 foot boat. So dealing with high winds at sea, first of all, the boat. Can the boat do it? What's the next most important piece of equipment? Well, 
you are, your knowledge. At the end of the day, yes, you can just get inside the boat, a bit like Robert Redford did in the film, and, and I've done it as well myself in other occasions, and you just take down all the sails, and you just hope to God that this isn't the time that uh, some giant wave comes along and knocks you over and creates a big problem for you. Um, I guess at this point, actually, as I've just said it, it's, it's worth saying, how big does a wave have to be to roll the boat over? Uh, the information in um, Adlard Cole's Heavy Weather Sailing, which if you haven't read that, um, you need to get on that. Heavy Weather Sailing is updated uh, quite regularly. The original version had so much good information in it, but now there are new chapters about multi-hulls and dealing with modern meteorological information and modern composites, that kind of stuff. Modern modern takes, indeed, on uh, and new stories of uh, how people have dealt with heavy weather. Um, Adlard Cole's, uh, they suggest that with a boat with traditional lines, which would be quite a deep, full keel and nice overhangs, quite uh, quite thin relative to the depth of the boat, so it's got good stability and good sea keeping, you'd only need to have a breaking wave with the breaking section one third of the beam of your boat for there to be enough weight in that uh, water and enough weight in the top of that wave to roll the boat over. So for me on our boats, we're, you know, obviously they're quite wide, like 20 foot wide. So we'd need to have a breaking crest on the top of a wave about seven feet for it to theoretically knock the boat over. Now, the boats that we have have different characteristics, which we're going to go into a second and probably wouldn't be bowled over by a, a wave of that size. But looking at more kind of standardized craft, the kind of thing that you would uh, expect to see out on the water normally, you know, let's have a say now we've got like 40 foot long and the beams can be about a third of that, something like that. So we're looking at around... 11 12 feet maybe now we need to have a third of that is the height of the breaking foamy water or the vertical section of the wave that's coming into you well if the beam of the boat is 12 foot wide you're going to only need to have a wave which is four feet and it's going to bowl the boat over bowl it over certainly onto its beam end so it's uh, it doesn't take that much actually people think it's going to require like huge amounts of you know billions of cumex of water coming roaring down the front of a gray beard in the open ocean and that boat's going to roll over but actually it's very very little it just depends what the structure of it is it's the vertical upright tumbling face of the wave which is the bit that's going to bowl the, the boat over it doesn't matter how big the waves are when they have quite smooth sides quite kind of uh, simple gradients up and down you'll just go up those and back down and rock and roll a bit it's that kind of tortured convoluted pyramidal wave that comes in between the others that suddenly got the the weight in it and the shape in it to just bowl the boat onto its side so um, as we start to look at uh, the the differences in boats which makes them more suited to going out on the water you know traditional boats were were designed by people who had uh, an eye for how this had to happen they also had centuries of experience and had uh, developed boats which were able to make large open passages in the open ocean pretty regularly without being uh, too concerned about you know how how it was going to go down if they went into a storm. A lot of running off in front of the storm was done, but on the whole, they did manage to make their way three. Now, how do you identify a boat which is going to be more solid in a, in a storm? So the boats which we have at Spartan Ocean Racing, they're race boats intended for going through the Southern Ocean. We've got a Whitbread 60, um, which is exactly the same uh, on paper, apart from it has an aluminum mast and a Volvo 60 has a carbon fiber mast. Um, those boats are, are basically the same boat. Then we've got our 85 foot Maxi, uh, which is 
pretty modern design, certainly designed about 1995, 1996 by far. It's got nice uh, moderate um, underwater sections, a little bit of curve in the bilge forward just to make it not quite so awful going upwind. Uh, quite amount of uh, rocker, so amount of curvature to the hull coming down from the bow to the keel and then going back up to the stern. And the boats have, uh, uh, you know, all the boats have very, very deep keels. So how, how deep and how heavy? Whilst the Whitbread 60 and the uh, Open 60 are flat bottomed and pretty much like a, a saucer, their keels are subtly different. The Open 60 has got four and a half tons on the bottom of it, which is very heavy for an Open 60. And she has a carbon fiber blade and that bulb at the bottom is tungsten, which means it has a very, very small silhouette. There's almost kind of nothing underneath there compared to the kind of volume you'd be looking at if you're dealing with lead. The Whitbread 60 has got about seven and a half tons on the bottom, big torpedoes, these things, and uh, that is lead, so it's got a bit more volume to it. The size of the keel bulb on the Whitbread 60 is about 16 foot long, and if you were kind of holding on to the keel, you had it right in front of you, it's about three feet from top to bottom at its widest, and probably three feet from left to right if you were looking at it from above, So and then tapering at the bow, tempering at the stern. So big kind of I always used to joke with my daughter that it was uh say look under the boat look see that uh, there's a dolphin just under the boat because of course that's what it looks like to a child like there's something down there but those bulbs are attached by a very thin blade I think I said in one of the recent YouTube videos I was uh making that it was like three feet from the front to the back of the blade probably for the open 60 it's about that I'd say for the Whitbread 60 it's maybe a little bit longer from front to back on that keel and on the maxi it's probably more like four and a half feet, something like that. But a very thin, very deep blade going down between 12 and 17 feet underwater, depending which boat you're looking at. The Maxi has got more like 12 tons underwater. Its bulb is enormous. Um, and that's what gives it the, the stability it requires to stand up to a 117 foot rig. But all of these across the board, even if these numbers don't make much sense, we're looking at very thin, very deep, very heavy bulbs. Um, attached to boats which are on the whole are pretty flat on the undersection. When I say that they've got a bit of rocker, still if you're inside the boat and you're standing in the bilge, like the the, the bilge boards, the, the sole boards are probably at your knees on the, on the maxi and that's probably about the level of the water level outside the boat. There's almost no um, waterfall effect. If, if we were to open up the I've actually had this once. We had a leak on the um, on Challenger, the Whitbread 60, when she was uh, left in Antigua, and water flooded in through a uh, hull fixture, which was slightly open and had a leak in the pipe. No one noticed, and she just filled up the center section of the boat. Now all the internal doors were closed, and you think, my God, how how bad will it get? This water just coming in and coming in and coming in while you're not there. Well, the answer is, it was about a foot deep. And that was it. It just there's so much buoyancy in the boat and there's so little of the boat in the water that the centre section where we were dealing with filled up with water about yeah, maybe maybe it was fourteen, fifteen inches deep in some places, like, you know, forty centimetres or something. And um it was quite easy to pump it back out. It did not affect the overall uh equilibrium of the displacement at all, enough to to, to get the boat to settle into the water. So uh, how much water can a boat take on, how much uh, stability it has, how much it can deal with waves running underneath it is a function of the shape of the hull. If you've got an older boat, a much more traditional boat, something like a, a folk boat, uh, one of the, the first boats I ever owned, it's got that big, deep, full keel with a, a, a rudder which is attached to the after end of the keel. 
if a wave comes along and hits you broadside, it's got huge surface area in that to to grab and flip the boat uh, over. And that's what happens really is that they do get um, they do get knocked uh, over like the wave comes and it hits the side of the boat. That's not really ever that serious. It can lay the boat onto its beam ends, but it's already passed and the boat stands back up. The worry is when the first wave comes along and kind of goes under the boat and the cyclic energy, the, the, the rotating energy inside the wave um, trips up the keel. The boat trips over its own keel and then it, it actually rocks uh, upwind. It rocks towards the next wave and then the next wave, of course, just pummels it. So that's the, uh, the way that the keel gets involved in it. A lot of modern designs, which are kind of like a modified skeg and, and keel, they, they have a little bit of the characteristics of both of these things. They're not quite as easy to trip up as the older boats are. They don't have the stability of the older boat. They don't have the stability of a race boat. They don't have the thin keel sections of a race boat, but they're somewhere in between and they have a moderate method of dealing with everything they meet. That's why it's a, a hull design which is used on so many boats. You've just got your basic kind of keel quite, quite long in the cord for compared to the race boats. And then you've got a skeg ahead of the rudder, which supports it. And the rudder comes down behind that, giving it a nice amount of balance, giving the boat nice characteristics and normal sailing and not providing too much for waves to get a hold of and trip the boat up. So the kind of boat that is going to be able to take on waves, just looking at its most simple format, is going to be a boat that has very little of its hull in the water, has a very thin uh, keel and then has a large heavy keel bulb below that. And that, of course, is what an offshore racing boat looks like, whether it's a Maxi or a Volvo 60 like the ones we've got, an Open 60, or on through to Volvo 65s and the and the more modern boats. So there's a reason they build them like that. Um, it's fast, it's effective, it means the boats turn very quickly when they're up on the race course, but when it does come to A lads A and you're in very heavy conditions, it means that the actual physical characteristics of the boat are uh, a benefit to you. So can the boat do it? Mm, yeah. Can the can the skipper do it? I think that's we. I think <laughs> I think I was about to start talking about this, and I went back to talking about the boats. But can the skipper do it? How much you know and how much experience you have could be two completely different things. Uh, you don't have to have necessarily gone through huge amounts of heavy weather to have a good grasp on what to do in heavy weather. Should you ever come across it and I, and I can say that with some honesty because that's that's my story of the first couple of times I got into heavy weather um, I, I became a clipper skipper in 2009 for the uh, 0910 race and I would say some of the heaviest weather certainly acute weather characteristics that we saw was on the delivery from the Gosport and Southampton area on the south coast of the UK and going up the east coast of the UK up to Hull, which is where our race started from, and we went over some uh, shallow ground there, and exactly as we were going over it, this weather set in. The North Sea there is very, very famous for that, and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't able to balance out which I should be more worried about: the wind speed and one of my crew going over the side, because they're all novice to this. We'd all gone and done our training, obviously they'd learn everything they need to learn about the clipper boat they're going to take around the world. They're in four weeks of training, but still, four weeks of training. Is not that much. So they're novice. We're trying to deal with what was 50 odd knots. But as I was watching us going over this shallow ground, the depth sender was literally going like six meters, five meters, four meters, three meters, two meters, four meters, five meters, six meters. It's like I thought we were going to hit the bottom before we, you know, hit the next port. So 
that was uh, an eye opener for me as that weather came in. It was the first time I was skippering a, a vessel of that size where it was solely me and there wasn't somebody for me to look up to. I had had the great luck to be able to sail with one of my mentors, Sandy Ma, uh, on a 67 foot challenge boat in Hong Kong for a number of years and learnt lots. But it's a bit different when somebody else is calling the shots and you're acting out their orders and suddenly it's all on you. So I learnt lots during that 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 weather, which probably only lasted like 18 hours or something. Um, and what I learned at that early juncture was that a lot of the things that I had read, a lot of the things which I had ingested from books that I'd read about sailing could all be used. All that information could be used right there and then in the real world, in real time as I required it. So I learned two very important things. Number one, reading about things to do with seamanship and sailing can translate into being able to use that stuff you know, in the thick of it. And number two, you better have it all in your head because there's no time to go below and and find it and learn it and read it, right? It's not, you can't be having a book with loads of like uh, post-it notes and colored things and bits circled with highlighters. You need to know it. So um, on that occasion, everything was pretty good. It was so uh, so quick in and out that it kind of really didn't require anything apart from uh, lots of smiles and cups of tea and get the trisal on and let's see how we go. But the next time we had really serious weather uh, was going across the Pacific. Now, the route for the Clipper race was Hull to La Rochelle to Rio to Cape Town. There was quite a lot of weather between Rio and Cape Town, but it was all kind of on the quarter and it was all nothing above 40 knots or so. And then from uh, Cape Town to Australia to Geraldton, again, lots of weather, but all behind the boat and just speeding along ahead of it, keeping the apparent wind down as much as we could. Didn't require much brain power from Geraldton in Western Australia up through the Sunda Straits and on to Singapore and from Singapore up against the northeast monsoon, which is a very heavy weather system to go against going up the South China Sea and some atrocious conditions there where that northeast monsoon basically blows at 40 knots for, from the northeast for like 10 days and builds a massive uh, chop, as you can imagine, because it's blowing across the Pacific up there by Japan. And it's... Um, it's it's got thousands of miles of fetch to build up waves and then it gets funneled into the Taiwan Straits with mountains that are four and a half thousand meters uh, in Taiwan and on the Chinese mainland and then the Taiwan Straits is very very shallow in places like down to 50 meters in some places and meanwhile on the other side of Taiwan you've got the Kuryoshi or the black current the uh, the black snake that runs up from the Philippines and up the side of the um, up the side of Japan, and it's the it's the Pacific Ocean's equivalent of the Gulf Stream. It's running at between one and four knots, and it's going northeast as this strong weather pattern blows down from the northeast. So it's wind against tide, and uh, really, really messy. There was a, a place, I can remember Jan that was driving um, Cape Breton. I remember him saying, we're no longer racing, we're just we're just we're just you know surviving and sailing and, and making our way to the next port. Um, I don't think we quite got to that position i think we just hunkered down and hunkered down and hunkered down further and further until we felt very safe i'm i'm very happy in in heavy weather it's something that i've ended up doing a lot of um as as the mate on boats in all throughout asia i kind of knew that patch of the world very well as well i'm very happy to keep my feet during the storm and deal with what comes thereafter up to a point of course so i was within my comfort zone and my comfort zone was sail extraordinarily conservatively but it was when we left China and headed out across the Pacific my own personal story was that I went around the bottom of uh, Japan and about 500 miles southeast of Tokyo 
we got knocked down by a, a wave in a in a, a big storm squall. It was it was a short storm. If it was a storm, I can't remember now. Um, but it was it was it did not go on for very long. It, it wasn't the main kind of gig that we're going to talk about here. But we got knocked down, and what happened was that there was a, a basically as a drain on deck inside the area where the life rafts were kept, and that drain went down through the back of the navigation cabinet. And uh, no one had noticed that there was a crack in one of the flexible tubes. And so when we got knocked over and that um, area of the deck went underwater, suddenly high pressure water coming down a four inch tube was just thrown throughout my navigation area and throughout all of the electronics. And uh, although the boat stood itself back up within 15 or 20 seconds, the nav station and all the communications gear was totally saturated. So we were in a race and we were heading heading east from Japan, heading towards um, San Francisco was the next stop. So we kept going because there was no, there was no risk to the boat at that time. It's not like we're going to, everything that I needed to keep the boat safe was still working. We just didn't have satellite communications, which takes us back immediately to like the 1990s, you know, so you can sail across an ocean in the 1990s. You can now, but clearly we want to get this fixed as quickly as we can. So I spent a couple of days, stripped everything apart, dried everything out, repaired what we could with the soldering iron got things working again and we got the Iridium system working and uh, immediately as soon as I connected to the network there was all these emails coming in from the race office and from loved ones and other skippers and everything saying you are heading directly into the center of a storm and one clever skipper had actually said to me I think you probably haven't got comms at the moment and uh, here's the center of the storm over the last three days just a series of digits and these are the concentric rings uh, around it which you can draw in wind speeds of 100 knots, 70 knots, 60 knots, 50 knots, whatever it was. So with that data and the paper chart, we were able to work out, oh, we are, we are driving kind of into the middle of this thing. But this uh, system was about the size of the Pacific. And to give you a feel for it, we were in it for two weeks. So we were traveling east at um, between 15 and 18 knots. It's pretty much the same speed that the storm was going. Um, and I believe we came second on that leg, uh, if I remember correctly. I think Jan and Kate Breton beat us in. But um, we sailed cleanly. Um, the only issue we had was one of the crew members, Keith, uh, cracked some ribs while he was leopard crawling down the deck. But uh, those are probably the heaviest conditions I've ever been in with a, with a crew on board the boat. And uh, so much of what I did to prep the boat for that storm, so much of what I did during the storm, so much of what I was able to share with the crew to keep their um, you know, their anxiety under control. So much of that came from the books that I've read. And it is actually the underlying principle behind the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. The point is, all this information in these books is right here. Why don't we just read them? You can absorb it while you're walking the dog or doing the chores or doing the sand and whatever it is. And um, if just a bit of it manages to decant itself down and it's able to use it in an emergency, then, you know, my, my job is done. So um, the person... The person who is going out into the heavy weather, the person which is going out on this boat, if you already made these decisions about what you should do and shouldn't do, that person ultimately, and those people in a wider sense, they need to have some skills about them. Um, this is a time when leadership becomes absolutely super important. You know, even if you don't know exactly what you're meant to do in that minute, the fact that you keep moving the whole process forward, that you keep smiling at people asking people, you okay? You're doing okay? Do you want some sugar? You need some water? Do you need to change those wet gloves out? Are you cold? Like all that stuff adds up to being a leader. And if you're on a boat, by the way, with somebody who is not asking you, are you comfy? 
Uh, are you warm? Are you well? How are you feeling? On pretty regular occasion, you can identify cleanly that they are not particularly good at being a skipper. They might be a brilliant helm. They might be a brilliant tactician. They may have the best kept boat in the fleet. But at being a skipper, and I always steer away from the word captain because I think captain should be left for people who drive big ships and are in the military. Being a good skipper is a leadership thing and leaders should be 100% on top of their equipment at all times. And that includes the crew. They are a massively important component of the boat. The boat can't get through the storm without the crew. The crew can't get through the storm without the boat. And it's the captain's job to balance that out. So as you go into heavy weather, do you have experience of this? Do you have all the right equipment on board? Do you have the right boat for it? Do you have the right attitude towards it? And then I guess the next thing is, are you taking this seriously? Like I, I've been in, um, I've been in heavy conditions with a couple of different sorts of people, and unfortunately, after you know many thousands of people being on the boats that I've worked on, I can't remember exactly all the the personalities, but I know the types. Um, and of course, if people do come up and remind me of particular particular adventures that we've been on, I do in the end get down to yeah, I can remember that particular one. But other than that, for me, it tends to be. Was it daytime or nighttime? Was it good weather or bad weather? And then I can at least categorize it by those four components as to what kind of sailing was it we're doing. But um, there's one characteristic that, um, well, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you another story from the from the Clipper race. Um, we were crossing between uh, Rio and, uh, yeah, Rio and Cape Town. And the conditions had gone from being quite flat and quite benign into being like a proper ocean you know like steep waves and we were surfing down things but there was there was wind there was cross seas there were a lot was going on and the most of the people that were on the boat had very little experience of sailing and even the round the worlders at this point are at the beginning of their round the world voyage so uh, and uh, you know so many of them went on to be brilliant sailors it was a joy to sail with them towards the end but this was the early days so there was still quite a lot of um uh what's the right word here it, they were taking things a little bit too lightly like it's good to have fun it's good to enjoy what's going on on board the boat even if it's serious racing you can't be like super serious about it all the time even if you're taking something seriously it doesn't mean you can't have some fun with it at the same same time but there was a bit too much uh i'm on top of this you know people running around without uh being clipped onto the deck and not looking at their body position all this kind of stuff taking risks so one evening i decided with other members of my crew um i remember that chris uh yeah, Chris Connolly was helping me with this, and uh, and uh, Captain uh, Captain Turbo, uh, Chris, another Chris. All the Chris's were on this watch. I'm trying to think who else is there now, but um, we three Chris's between us. Um, we were about uh, seven people on our watch, and we had some of the some of the good guys on our watch. Some of the people who had been involved in kind of military or semi-military training in the in the past, quasi-military training like firefighting or EMT or something like that. And we decided that we'd do like a, a real-world type man overboard. Uh, drill. Now, most of the man overboard drills which we did before we set off around the world with Clipper. Clippers is absolutely fastidious about making sure that people really understand how to do man overboard before they ever set off on a race. They're very, very good at that. Um, but there's a reality which is the fact that you can train it so many times that you start to get a feeling that you really do know how to do it and it's really not an issue. And of course that's not quite exactly how man overboard goes down at sea in a real world situation. So um, what did I had? I had uh, Chris, Chris, who'd been in the Marines, went forward and was uh, like into the very front of the boat where most of the crew were sleeping. It was just, you know, red lights and they're all off watch. And he goes in there, man overboard, man overboard, man overboard. 
And people are like, holy moly, like they're jumping straight from sleep. They've been at sea for already a couple of months. So they know like, hey, you know, come on deck, there's an emergency. They know how to move fast. But this is a new call they'd not heard before. The lights go on. There's this guy shouting, shouting, shouting. Meanwhile, I got uh, the engine in uh, neutral, but had control of the throttle. So I start revving the main engine, which is right in the main salon as everybody's uh, filing out of this uh, area where they're sleeping up at the front. And then I had the other Chris, I think, was in the nav station area with the um, VHF. Uh, I think it was on, but it was on like channel 15 or 17 or something, which are short range channels. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And without pressing the button, he's shouting, uh, Mayday, 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 this is Qingdao, Qingdao. So and we've got a man overboard, you know. So people are like, from their point of view, as they woke up, this was a man overboard situation. And that's where we found out about the three types of crew. And that's what I was alluding to earlier. I've, I've met so many people on a boat, so I don't remember everyone's story, but I know the types. And they are heroes, thinkers, and dreamers. Okay, so the heroes in our particular situation in the middle of the Pacific going from Rio, oh, sorry, middle of the Atlantic, going from Rio to Cape Town. Now, I'd like to just underline here the fact that um, there was no man overboard. It was totally a drill. And the other half of our little crew of people that were on deck, there's only seven of us running the boat during the night. I divided the crew into three watches. So um, we really did. People got a good amount of time to sleep and they didn't have to uh, be sitting on their butts on deck with nothing to do. There's seven of us on watch. I'm probably driving the boat. If there were two or three down below, the other two or three were literally clustered around the companionway to catch people coming out of the companionway. Because I told them this is going to get super messy, right? So the boat's rocking and rolling, rocking and rolling. Chris is yelling, man over, man overboard. And they're on the VHF and they're on the engine and everything else. And then, boom, on deck come the heroes. They have got their underwear on, yeah? It's like plus five Celsius, like just below, above zero uh, on deck. It's blowing, blowing enough, certainly. It's pitch black. They've got no head torches. They've got no footwear. They've got no waterproofs. They've got no, they've got nothing. But they are there ready to act they will get involved they will throw their own body you know uh, against the problem to to solve it for you if they can and of course these people were immediately corralled and then life jackets retrieved for them life jackets on and then during the next couple of minutes uh, if they needed to get out of the cold before somebody gets um <laughs> gets hypothermia so they're on deck first they're on deck within literally you know 30 seconds they're out their pits and i have to say that probably i'm in that group i i am I'd certainly be sticking my head up super early on and then go back down and hopefully join the second group. The second group, they're the thinkers. The thinkers came next. The thinkers came like five minutes later. And five minutes, remember, is like 300 seconds. It's like one, two, three. Like think what you could achieve in 300 of those, right? They have got their boots on. They've got their waterproofs on. They've got their life jackets on. Somebody has gone and got a kettle on the boil. Somebody's got the boat hook. Somebody's got the first aid kit opened up down below. People come on deck. They've got their head torches. They're ready to go. They're already moving to the positions they need to go to for man overboard search and rescue thing as we'd planned it. But of course, they were corralled by those on deck from iWatch, told, hey, just relax, stay here. So by the time we've got most people up, I realize I've got to get this under control. Otherwise, we're going to have somebody, you know, not getting the message that this is a a, a, a task, a training task, and uh, we're going to have a prompt. So we pile everybody back down inside the boat and we close the companionway. So no one can get out now. We can't have any issues. And it's as we sit down and we start to debrief what's going on, the dreamers turn up. 
The dreamers come wandering out of the four peak, bleary eyed. Hey, what's going on? I heard a bit of a ruckus. Or that one of them came out the toilet, like, ah, oh, do you need me or are you guys all done? Like, so somebody comes into your accommodation area shouting, man over, man over, man over. The engine is going. Maydays are going out, supposedly on the VHF. And five to 10 minutes probably afterwards, they're like, you know, do you need me? So those are the three groups of people. So you need to understand, like, which one you are. Not which one you want to hope to be or you hope the people around you are. If you've been sailing with people and you've been through tough situations, you already know which one they are. And it might be that they are a very different from what their everyday personality is. I always say if you sail with somebody, um, you can always tell what kind of drunk they are. If somebody is a mess during um, any kind of like stressful situation out on the sea, they're probably a messy drunk as well. They just kind of can't hold it together. It's not a you know, huge problem, but that's just, I've, I've always noticed that. If someone can't really handle the stress and strain of being at sea, they probably can't handle their, their alcohol too well as well. It seems to be the same kind of part of the brain. And those who would jump willfully off a roof into a swimming pool like to see if they can are the same ones that probably come up in the heroes section of our uh, man overboard response in this situation. So if at all possible, you want to be in the um, the thinkers group. We've got dreamers, thinkers, and heroes you want to be in the thinkers and being in the thinkers comes from training 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 and it's kind of a funny thing if you've not been in the military or the police force or first responders or something like that, doing training stuff feels really kind of like weird and awkward you know i know if you're at the beginning of your career picking up the vhf and talking on the vhf like can feel really like feel a bit embarrassed a bit self-conscious um doing man overboard things out on the water and calling okay it's you know 50 yards 40 yards 30 yards you can start feeling like jeepers like i'm gonna feel i feel a bit silly doing this the thing is that you need to build that muscle memory so that when the really the shit has hit the fan it's already hit the fan and you're now called to wipe it off the blades that you know how to do that you can't like start planning well i think what i'd like to do is you have to already have it. So the nature of the people going into the situation is very important. Next thing is the knowledge of the people, the knowledge of that boat. The knowledge is your knowledge up to date. You will find, of course, there's many older people and I'm, you know, I'm on my way there myself. We're all on our way there. Um, many older people who have boats who are the captain are very, very experienced in a certain number of situations that they've been in, which would be, as we could say, in their comfort zone. The problem is if we now start to go outside of the comfort zone and they haven't yet worked out um, plans for that, plans that involve the reality of the body they're now wearing uh, since they went north of 60 or they went north of 70 or went north of 80 or whatever it is. There's a, people who are incredibly able sailors in you know their later years because it, it comes more to them. They kind of see the whole picture. They've absorbed the knowledge over time. But in heavy wind situations, maybe you just have to be able to climb up onto the boom. Maybe you just have to be able to get across the foredeck. And if you haven't built new systems that work with your physical reality at that time, that can be a big problem for everybody else who's relying on you because you're the source of information. I'd like to add also that when we were in that super windy situation in the Pacific, um, I guess there's two things I'd like to add to that. The first one is that um, have you ever seen that scene from Master and Commander? What am I talking about? If you listen to this podcast, you've definitely seen Master and Commander. And if you haven't, then you must take yourself outside and beat yourself with the painter or something. But it's uh, the uh, fantastic scenes in that of uh, of them on the water. And there's one bit when they're going around the horn where the 
is it like one of the masts breaks away and there's a load of wreckage in the water and there's a guy in the water and they're trying to get him back to the boat and he's trying to swim towards him. But in the end, if they don't do something soon, they're going to lose the entire ship. The whole ship's being uh, pulled over by this rigging in the water and the hydraulic lock it's got on the water. And so um, Jack Aubrey, the main character there, has to make the decision. He cuts away that wreckage and uh, that fella just disappears off into memory. Um, that thought, that scene, that kind of uh, sentiment is something which I, I I bring to mind on a more than daily basis. Every time I'm at sea, it, it uh, affects how much I clip on. It affects my handholds, my footholds. It affects my heavy weather tactics. It affects everything because I always imagine what it would be like to be that person. I think there's a scene like that in the film um, Perfect Storm as well, right? I think, it's the, I think it's actually the end where he's dying and he's like sending out his thoughts and his love into the universe for his uh, wife who's ashore and doesn't realise what's happening to him. But um, I always think what that would be like, and of course that's the reality if you get into these, when we're talking about what's the biggest storm you've ever been in, what the actual question is, how close have you actually been to nearly dying? Which can happen in these situations. If the boat's not right, if the people aren't right, what happens is you die. So when I think about that scene from Master and Commander, it makes you remember that there are decisions that captains have to make sometimes in very heavy conditions where you have to sacrifice one person for the rest of the crew. And I said this to my crew during this uh, clipper race. We were in a situation where we were doing a watch changeover. Um, at the time, we just had three people on deck, one driving the boat, one looking basically behind the boat, looking at the giant waves that were coming in and calling the angles so that the, the helmsman could adjust the course and keep the stern of the boat into the waves. And another person at the companionway entrance, which on a 68-foot boat is like 12 feet away from the driver, to act as an intermediary and just shout orders back and forwards. But it was so cold and so windy that they're only that team of three was only on deck for 20 minutes, which in a crew of 20 means there's 17 people inside the boat cycling through those three on deck, right? So I turn at some point, kind of climb up the companionway steps a little bit, and I'm looking. Imagine the kind of the lights, are, the yellow lights are on in the galley, but everything else is red lights, and there's lots of people in there with sort of sitting and lying about some standing or looking at me and and smoke you know um, steam coming out of all their mouths because it's so cold the inside of the boat is just running with condensation the boat's pitching and throwing all over the place and I said to them you need to understand that we've now got to a point in this that if anybody falls over the side of this boat I am not coming back for you because I will kill everybody else trying to do it and I think that was a moment where everybody realized like wow this is this is really real. You know, this is not a training thing in the in the middle of the Solent. This is not just throwing a couple of lines and a fender over the side and picking it up and calling it man overboard. This is this is real life, right? And that is the reality of it. You can pander to people's egos and tell them they're doing it great and you can get all the equipment on board you need and build the boat and everything else. But at the end of the day, when you're out in the ocean, um, if it goes wrong, it goes really seriously wrong. And I guess that leads me on to my Second point, which is that the ramp, ramp of consequences at sea is very steep. If you're involved in a little accident, uh, well, not little, if you're involved, you get knocked down by a car or something. You're in town, you step off the curb not looking, you get clipped by a car, you're basically okay, but you're at the side of the road, you certainly need medical attention. Um, there's going to be passerbys, there's going to be the car driver, there's going to be the ambulance coming, there's going to be insurance, there's going to be your family, there's going to be Everything is going to be laid on for you in a ramp of consequences that you can kind of you can kind of see. You just hope that nothing too weird happens in the injuries you've got. But basically, as long as you survive the thing and nothing else is too... You can imagine where that goes. The problem at sea is 
the ramp of consequences is so bloody steep that you just don't see it coming. It hits you like a wall because you can go from being wet to dead in 20 minutes very, very easily in some kind of situation in heavy seas. So the kind of people, that's where we started out, the boat, the kind of people, and then the specific skills of the person, they need to be honed over time. And it's my belief, whether rightly or wrongly, that you can you could read yourself, you know, if you read one book a week for two years, you'd have read over a hundred books about sailing, which means that you probably have done like a million miles. Could you have done that? Maybe not a million. Let's say, let's say you've equaled my I've got three hundred odd thousand miles. You read a hundred books. I think you've got, in some ways, a lot of the experience that I've got because it's just situation after situation after situation. You know, if you read Bernard Mortissier's book um, of him sailing around the world, he comes on deck and the dolphins are really agitated and flapping their tails, and he's like, "This is really weird. Why are they acting like this?" So he goes below, rechecks his last fix, and realizes that he's about to drive onto the rocks. So, wonderful story. Take from that, if dolphins are acting really strangely around the boat, maybe it's time to go and look at the navigation. What a weird thought. What a strange thing to look at dolphins and do that. But they're super intelligent. They're the second most intelligent animal on the planet. Is it possible they'd have some concept that boats don't normally come this close? I, I don't know. I have no idea. But it might be right. And it might just cross your mind. I could tell you a story about the fact that... Um, I remember sailing along on my Open 60 and looking down to leeward and the split pin had fallen out of the leeward uh, shroud. The giant like one and a quarter inch pin that goes through the bottom of those turnbuckles, it was half hanging out. So now I know that the pins should be put from the inside to the outside and then the um, split pin should be on the outside. It's very unlikely that the shroud tension is going to come loose when it's windward rigging and that the pin's going to fall out and into the boat. It's a lot more likely that the leeward rigging is going to go loose. And if there's anything weird with your split pin, God knows how my split pin came out. But if it's going to happen and the pin is put from the inside to the outside, it can't fall out. You don't have to go through what I went through. You don't have to lose your rig or have that terrible trapdoor moment where you realize, jeepers, this thing's about to fall apart. You just have to know, put the pins from the inside to the outside. And that's what sailing's built on. It's just built on millions and millions of those. And you can shortcut the system a bit if you are willing to take on board information from lots of other sailors and you might learn about cool places to go to and hear some funny jokes and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, hence the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. So look, we haven't even talked, again, up to an hour here and we haven't even talked very much about the uh, the boat. And I'm only going to run this for an hour and a half. So if we have to do two sections on this, so much the better, right? Because everybody wants to know about how to deal with high winds. That's the big thing. Um, Okay, so we have looked at uh, the kind of boat you take, uh, whether it's adapted for the kind of environment. It's very easy to get information on how your boat should be set up for heavy weather sailing. That's really not complex. There's a zillion titles out there that will give you that information. Just follow what they have to say and uh, adapt it to your boat. The kind of people, yes, you can look at paper qualifications. You look at sea miles. But the kind of person, the kind of person that's going to be out there, Yes, they may have the paperwork to get you across the ocean, but are you going to ever want to speak to them again on the other side? That's that's a case of going out and sailing with them and getting to know them and remembering always that, you know, it's just sailing. It's if unless you're literally doing it for your business, it's it's just a game and there's no point taking any risk with safety. When you talk about going into high wind situation, the forces, the loads that on everything. It can be a life-changing decision to go out on the water in super heavy conditions. And uh, I I don't seek them out. I have to say, like, um, 
My observation has been about 10% of the time I've been at sea is super heavy weather, like really heavy weather. Um, 10% of the time is calms. I've talked about this before, the upper 10 and lower 10. Upper 10, you know, the, the, the weather is so nice. It's got to a point where there's no wind. It's great if you're cruising, you can just hang out. Not so great if you're trying to race. The upper 40, 40% of our time is spent in beautiful champagne sailing conditions. The upper 10, uh, no wind. The upper 40, beautiful wind. Lower 40, mm, wind, but kind of maybe a bit too much wind and kind of crappy conditions and fog and wet and all the rest of it. I call that the lower 40. About 40% 40 of your time is in those conditions. And then the lower 10 is where you get these super high wind speeds and storms. So only about 10% of your time is spent in really difficult conditions. And of course, what you can do if you're smart is you can choose not to go in those situations. You can look at the weather. And we are blessed now, of course, to have fantastic weather information. The um, grid system, the graphics rendered in binary, which makes such small uh, data transfer packet sizes that we can do it on uh, very simple technology now. There's ways of doing it with your SSB. You can do it with your um, cell phone, your, your your satellite cell phone. You can do it with integrated satellite systems on the boat. There's a zillion ways of getting GRIBS onto the boat. But remember always, as we've said before, GRIBS stands for graphics rendered in binary, and it also stands for get real, it's bollocks. Because at the end of the day, it is a very complicated weather model, a mathematical model essentially of a huge amount of data. It is absolutely dependent on the quality of the data coming in. It's absolutely dependent also on the ability of the navigator to interpret that data. Like for me personally, I love Predict Wind. And you see on Predict Wind that they have uh, GFS um, and their own version of it, like Predict Wind's GFS, which is kind of like interpolated with other information to give you a, this is probably what's going to happen. The issue is when you're getting raw data and you're not adding anything else to it. It's like having lots and lots of ingredients to all sorts of different menus in your cupboards, but you're just kind of like throwing things together and hoping that's called weather forecasting. If you don't know a lot about weather, you're better to use an integrated system like something like PredictWin, not that I'm sponsored by anybody, but um, where the information is somewhat decanted down so you can just read it as this is probably what's going to happen. If you start getting into it where you're doing like uh, 500 millibar ISO uh, uh, ISO charts and you're um, looking at sea temperatures and you're getting scrapes from satellites that are showing the size of waves and water temperature and that's a whole other level right that's that's beyond what I can do but I know what data I'm looking at and I realize that there's a huge amount of drift that can occur and for me personally what I've always said is it's normally it can be about 15 degrees out it can be 15 minutes out or it can be 15 miles out but equally on some occasions, it's been, you know, an hour and a half out and 30 degrees off and 25 knots difference. And it, it just depends where that data is coming from. Sometimes also it's easy to see like there's a center of a storm and you see, OK, well, I'm here and the storm's there. And then you're thinking, well, this must be the exact wind speed between this point and this point perhaps not accommodating for the fact that it's an interpolation between a known value or a predicted known value predicted known value can you have that it's a predicted value in a particular area at a particular time and then there's just gradations away to other known values in other places obviously they're not doing weather patterning which covers like every square centimeter of the sea there's some interpolation between geographic places between time zones between um, time periods rather between um, wind speeds pressures so you can't 
absolutely 100% trusted all the time. I've had an experience in 2016, I think we were going down to the Caribbean. I went into a weather system which was predicted to be 35 to 45 off New York. And there was a, a big ship that was about 100 miles in front, inside us, closer to the coast. They had 100 knot gusts. We had 70 knots on deck. And uh, there was just two of us on the boat and we were... We'd just driven in there thinking it was going to be like a gale and suddenly like you're in you're hanging on by your fingernails and luckily we're in a big boat and it's uh, pretty safe for that boat in those conditions but you never exactly know so we have the gift of gribs but we must never take it as being well no it says it's not gonna it's just gonna miss us well just gonna miss us can mean it's just gonna hit us as well so have your information have your equipment have a good understanding of the people on the crew, have a good understanding of the boat. And then if you have to go into heavy weather conditions, be very aware of how that combination of things will come together to either lead to success or to um, what could be a very serious failure, you know, because that ramp of consequences. So let's get a little bit more granular here. Um, let's talk about some specific things dealing with high winds. The main thing really is what are the the vectors of danger for you when you're out on the boat? From 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 whence does danger come? Um, it would be easy to fall into now doing the rest of this podcast all about um, and this is the dangerous vector of the storm and da 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 these things that are meteorological and I think I think you can probably work that out for yourself if you know very quickly if uh, you need to know. Uh, if we're dealing with the northern hemisphere, then uh, storms are normally tracking to the northwest, but they will often, this is big storms like hurricanes, they will often track to the northwest and then they'll recurve round to the northeast. So there's a good chance that a storm can be heading in a generally northwesterly condition, come to a, uh, no, northwest, yeah, northwesterly, then it'll come round to north and then it'll come round to northeast. The dangerous quadrant is the the half of the storm that's coming towards you first okay there is specifically one quarter of it that's the, the the dangerous vector but the front half of the storm is clearly of great danger to you because you are in its path okay now one quarter of that storm the northern edge of it if it's in the northern hemisphere it's going to be or certainly when it's on a north uh, easterly track it's more like the um uh, no, I suppose it's still still the northerly quadrant. Okay, whatever. The I'm trying to work it out in my head as well because I've got to do the southern hemisphere, which reverse in a second. But the front half of the storm coming towards you, that's deadly. And then the half of the storm that's blowing towards you, the direction of winds that are blowing towards you will have both the wind speed inside the storm plus the speed of the storm making its way across the water. That will be accumulative, will be added together. So if you've got 100 knots inside the storm and it's doing 18 knots towards you, suddenly it's doing 118 knots. That's just 20% pushed on top just, just for turn up, right? And then, of course, remember that gusts can be uh, 140% of what's going on. So if you have some storm that just keep the numbers round, you know, and when we're sailors, so it should be big numbers, right? So let's say we've got 100 knots coming towards you and the storm's coming towards you at 20 knots. Now it's doing 120 knots towards you, this wind. And then let's think about, we get some gusts in there and suddenly you've got uh, wind gusts. If you've got 100 knots in the center of this thing and it's coming towards you at give or take 20 knots, with the gust, you could be looking at over 160 knots coming at you. 160 knots. Go the other way. And uh, the winds, like you're going with the wind now. Well, first you're going with the wind, so your apparent wind speed drops, but you're in the back of the storm and it's traveling away from you. You're in a situation where suddenly things are being reduced. You've got 100 knots in there, but the storm's going away from you, so it's more like 80 knots. And then you're running with it. And so you're dealing with 
whatever boat speed you've got available being taken off the wind speed, which for me in those um, clever boats was about 15 knots. So suddenly we're down to 65, 40% of 65 is, yeah, it's a big gust. It's 85 or so, but only once in a while. That's very different, isn't it? From 160 knots trying to beat into it. So knowing exactly which edge of the storm to go into, which edge of the storm you need to be cautious of, uh, very, very important. Um, but I think for this this first section of this uh, look at um, high winds uh, out on the high seas, let's just stick with some generalities and we'll come in and drill down on a few details afterwards. For this one, what's patently becoming obvious to me as I'm doing this is that we need to talk about this for a little bit longer. And I'm, I'm a little bit loath now to drive these Mariner podcasts into the two, three hours because who's got time to listen to that? So if we keep it in a reasonable amount, let's stay in generalities, knowing which quadrant of the storm you can pass through safely, knowing which way that things recurve in your part of the world, recognizing also just the, um, the, the, the nomenclature which is used, the jargon that's used to describe these things. I think one of the things that came out of the uh, Sydney Hobart uh, disaster in 1997 was that um, sailors didn't understand the difference between gale and storm, um, which I, I think it's it's we can all still have gaps in our knowledge, right? I will say this. I love reading books that have very basic sailing things in them because it doesn't matter how many times you go over it, you still get something new out of it and you can still have some major like, oh, moment in the middle of learning something like, you know, how to jibe or <laughs> some super basic aspect of sailing and go, oh, that's why that thing goes wrong. So yes, knowing the difference between a gale becomes a storm and not the other way around is, is really rather important. Um, Okay, so generalities as we uh, are heading out onto the water and we have a feeling that uh, we may be in a part of the world where uh, heavy winds are possible. I guess the other thing which we could talk about as we're talking about generalities, what's a, a general kind of way of dealing with it? Well, your options are, there, there are a few options. Uh, one of the first ones is to run with it. Okay, so running with it requires a lot of sea room. Um, back in the day when you had uh, tall ships plying their way around the world and, uh, and, and you know most of the world's uh, trade was going through tall ships, there was a lot of seamanship. There was a lot of knowledge. The boats are very strong. They're very seaworthy. And yet we find loads of wrecks off the coast. Like why did these big shops, ships end up in situations that they couldn't get out of despite the skill of the crews, the skill of the master mariner that was in charge of them and the sailing master that was in charge of them? And yet they still ended up ashore. Well, a lot of that is to do with the design of the boats and the fact that a lot of them were square riggers and they didn't have the ability to tack. And if you get caught up against a lee shore, the wind's blowing on shore and you're unable to tack the boat very effectively, it's very difficult to get your way off the shore. So if you're going to run ahead of strong wind, you need to know where the shore is downwind from your position. Now, if you've got a thousand miles and you really are you know, more nervous about the boat being able to take the weather than your timetable or something else, then running before it might be a very good option. As you run away from the storm, you stay in sequence with the waves. Your speed is at least a good percentage of the wave speed. Waves are normally traveling between 15 and 18 knots in a storm. And if you can do, say, seven or eight knots of that, then you're halving the power that the waves hit you with. Also, if you're running before the wind, you're lowering the apparent wind speed because, of course, you're running in the same direction as the wind. So you get to reduce the wind's pressure on your rig and on your boat and on your crew by whatever boat speed you're able to uh, pick up and carry. So in that clipper situation that we we're talking about, that would be something along the lines of 
15 to 18 knots we were doing and the wind was blowing. Well, I, uh, whenever I tell that story, I tell people it was over 45 knots for two weeks and it was over 70 knots for three days. That's baseline speed. So uh, you can kind of understand our progress. We basically were in it for the entire way across the Pacific. Um, and that situation, if it was blowing 65 knots and we were driving along at 15 knots, then we get 40 knots on deck, right? It's it's pretty, pretty simple. That reduces the the duty cycles on all your equipment, the loading up of the rig, the loading up of the components on the rig. Remember, a rig can have over 150 components in it. Each one is going to go through its own work cycle as it gets loaded up by a storm. It means that you've got uh, the waves running with you and the load cycles on the boat and on the rudder and on the, and on the crew as well, right? They're all reduced if you can um, keep your boat running ahead of the storm. Another tactic people use is to... Um, go under bare poles so now you haven't got any storms up you're under bare poles either running with bare poles or just hove to and lying a hull as we would say uh, lying hove to is a particular um, a particular setting of the sails which and of the rudder which allow you to stay in one place for one time but you know we also use it in a descriptive sense sometimes that things just batten down and hove to so in this circumstance I mean just we're under bare poles and we've gone inside the boat we are lying a hull the other option, as we've just sort of covered there, is heaving to, where we get our jib and we back our jib, ease the mainsail probably a little bit, bring your tiller and pin it, and then you've got a situation where the mainsail is trying to drive you forward, the jib is trying to turn you downwind, the rudder is trying to turn you upwind, and the net result is that the boat just drags sideways at two or three knots. That could be a very good way of handling things. If you have got big waves and a lot of wind, though, you can still get knocked over on your beam ends quite a lot. If you've got a boat that seals up nice and tight and can take being knocked over, that's a good way of handling it. And for many mild squalls, that might be, yeah, 40 knots, but for, you know, 25 minutes as it blows over, um, heaving to is a very, very good option. One of the skippers that I raced against in the Clipper race, actually, I guess my head's just in Clipper Town at the moment. Um, what was his name now? Brendan. Is that right? Brendan. Yes. The guy that won the 0910 Clipper race, <laughs> he um, afterwards he told me that uh, all the schools they went through, they would just heave to. And I thought, God almighty, <laughs> if only I'd known. Um, I think my instinct was to heave to because I was in a race and I was an inexperienced race skipper at the time. I was thinking, you've you know, got to keep going. But oftentimes we were heading in completely the wrong direction with way too much sail up. And of course, all that Brendan was doing was just... Um, heaving to, letting it go over the top of him and then standing the boat up and getting going. What a fantastic way. It takes all of the load off the crew. It makes a, a difficult circumstance into a simple circumstance. You don't run away from your objective. You stay where you are and just deal with it. I learned a lot from that and it's something I do a lot myself now. If there's a heavy squall coming in, I more tell people to get the kettle on, prepare the boat for you know reef, heave to, and then just let it blow over and then pop out the other side of it. So we can we can run before the storm. We can um, we can under bare poles run before it, or we can just lie a hull with bare poles. We can heave to with some combination of sails up that we have already found out is a good combination of sails in this kind of wind speed for this boat to heave to. Um, or we can go to something like a para anchor, which is something that came up in the all is lost video that I did the reaction to. Um, he ended up putting his power anchor out the back of the boat, which I thought was a very um, interesting choice. 
I'm not, it seemed to work perfectly okay for him, but then I guess he was on a movie lot in LA. So, you know, it doesn't really matter too much. Obviously, if you did attach your boat to a power anchor, if for those who don't know, a power anchor is like a giant parachute that goes in the water and it creates a hydraulic lock, very strong lines coming off it, going to the boat, going to something really secure on the boat. And normally, of course, attached to the bow of the boat. So the boat then essentially is anchored in the middle of the ocean. You're only going to move as fast as the water is moving. Remember that a wave is traveling through the water because it's cyclic energy uh, that is passing through the water. But the actual water molecules themselves just go up and down when a wave passes. It's the energy that's passing through the water at 15 to 18 knots. But if you are locked into the water body itself, then you can only move across the surface of the planet at the speed that that body of water is moving, which in the open ocean may well be close to zero if you're not in any kind of current or anything. So when you've got that height, once you've got that hydraulic lock in place and the boat's turned into it, probably all sails down, unless there's a little riding sail or something up. Um, the, what Come what may, it's going to come over the bows and the boat's just going to rear up against it. And those parent anchors would normally have like hundreds of feet of line so that it is on the back of the wave that's coming towards you and you are on the front of the wave. And as the wave hits you, the parent anchor is dragged into the back of the wave. You don't want it so long so that it's getting down the front of the next wave while you're getting hit by this one, nor do you want it so short that both you and the parent anchor are on the face of the same wave in white uh, aerated water where the power anchor will lose its lose its grip. So power anchor is normally set out the front, but if you're Robert Redford, you can set it out the back and it'll be completely fine. Um, but uh, after that, uh, you, you're after those options. Uh, if you if you're not doing those things, um, then you are sailing. Basically, that's the you're sailing. Then you do those things, and at the end of those things, for most people, it's a case then of. Um, of uh, of just lying a hull inside the boat and, and hoping everything's going to work out. And then the, 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 the design of your boat and the strength of your boat is going to be the critical element. For us, with these big race boats, with the hardly any hull in the water, very deep keels, very strong boats, um, more often than not, when we've got people on board who are new to that kind of sailing, we just uh, put all the sails down, clamp everything tight and, uh, and batten down the hatches and... Uh, and lash ourselves in our berths basically and wait for it to blow itself out. I've never yet been hit by a wave in one of those boats that's big enough to make a, a serious dent on the boat's stability, although have been hit by waves which hit the boat with such force that people have been catapulted out of their um out of their bunks. And um who was that? Jim. Jim, we were going across from Connecticut to uh to the Canaries and uh Jim got punted out of his uh, bunk passed straight over the engine bay, went through a gap that's about two foot by three foot. I think he was like 70 at the time, just catapulted across the side of the boat. I thought, oh my God, here we go. And of course, got to the other side, like the rocket man that he was, ex-British, uh, ex-American Navy, sorry, Jim, to British Navy. <laughs> um, he uh, He's like, well, skipper, it's going to leave a bruise. And he got himself back up and got back in his bunk. But that's when we realized that we're going to, we're going to lash ourselves in our bunks here. So be cautious of that. But um if you are not doing any of those things, then you are sailing around in this heavy weather, right? That's the option. I suppose you can anchor. Very tricky to do in the open ocean. Like give it a shot um, if you've got enough rope on board, of course. Um, but other than that, yes, you are sailing around. Then you need to know your boat. Then you need to know how to sail in heavy wind conditions. And I think that maybe is what we'll get into the next one. Because people always remember what's at the beginning at the end of these podcasts. 
<laughs> they can't remember three hours of me talking about stuff. So I think we've given this a good shot. We've given it a good dusting down now. We've talked about, you know, is your boat suitable for it? Are the people suitable to go on board? The crew levels, the crew knowledge, the equipment on board. Um, has your boat been modified to deal with this kind of thing? The attitude, being very aware of the, the nature of information in the gribs. We now know don't get in the way of the storm. The dangerous quadrant is the front half of it coming towards you, clearly. Although one part of it, i.e. with the wind coming towards you, is more deadly than the other half. But um, why don't we leave it for the next part of these ones for me to go into a few more details about exactly what to do with the boat, which, you know, sail settings and, and balancing the boat trim. There's also a lot of things I'd like to talk about, like little detail stuff that you can do to reinforce the rig, man ropes on the deck, how to, you know, have you got a quick method of tying 30 uh, overhand knots into a rope to, to lay down the side of your boat so that it's... Um, so that you have man ropes to, to climb along on the on the deck. Like I, I've got some ideas of how those things might go down uh, nice and uh, easily, uh, which have been passed on to me through the books I've read and the and the mentor sailors that I've been able to sail with. So we'll do that in the second part. But I hope there's something in here today for you to uh, start to scratch your chin about and cogitate and think about uh, how your boat's set up. Is it suitable? Like what is the maximum wind speed you can be out on? You know, maybe that's the we leave this with a bit of a question. You're the boat that you've got. What's the maximum wind speed you've been out in? What's the maximum wind speed that you yourself have been out in? What's the maximum wind speed that you think you and your crew can handle? The equipment that you've got on board. What's the what's the most serious situation you could do? Have you got a, like a, a bag of stuff that uh, if you get a, a crack in the hull, you're going to be able to follow that hull immediately? Is that gear ready to go? If you get some, the mast snaps off, have you got some way of making a jury rig like we can get into all that because that is the nitty gritty of uh, of high wind situations that we seriously damage the boat and that damage leads to grave or imminent danger to the crew. I think we can get down that path with it, but let's not do it on the back of me already having talked for an hour and 20 because it's uh, my mouth's like Gandhi's flip flop already. It's pretty, pretty damn dry. So that's high winds at sea part one. We didn't know we we're going to have part two. Now we know we're going to have part two and we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, and I will do a shameless plug again for the Rare Nautical Reads podcast based on the fact that it sounds, from what I've just said, like it's kind of like a safety thing to go and learn as much as you can from books of <laughs> of expeditions and, and sailors' adventures through time. Be I got to say, like from, and I, and I think I mentioned this before, from 21 to 31, I pretty much read sailing nonfiction uh, exclusively. I, I can't remember reading anything else. Um, and, I, and I learned so much from it. I was able to sit on the decks of those boats in those super heavy conditions, like just racking my brains. Okay, what did Mortissier do? What did Bombardier do? What did Knox Johnson do? What did, you can go through and think of like the your heroes of sailing and then think, what would they do? And chances are they've probably written it down and put it in a book because as good sailors, they want to share what they've learned with you so that you can save yourself. So they're willing to give you the info, the info is available, go and get it. And where better to do it than at the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. <laughs> and if you do that, go over to flipping Patreon and pop five bucks in the jar per month. Because at the moment, I have now done, and you know how scrappy I am with this podcast, and you know full well that I've made promises in the past, like, oh yes, we're going to do it three times a week, and we can do it every day. And it all comes to nothing. I've learned a couple of things recently as I've started a new podcast. Number one, it's better to have a timetable, even if you're rubbish at creating uh, material. 
it's uh, it's much better just to have some kind of timetable. So what I've done with the Rare Nautical Reads is it comes out daily. And I can tell you that the last two weeks I have put one out every day. And I have now got the next four days already in the can, ready to go, scheduled online. So that's happening. And that perhaps some element of that learning will drift across to the Mariner podcast and we can get on some kind of schedule. There's certainly enough stuff to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to be looking at, I looked at Noah's Ark the other day, which is very interesting for me. I'm going to be looking at um, Shackleton's uh, ship Endurance, which was found. I have a very close connection to that story. I got to tell you, I, I've literally not looked at any of the data any of the images I've seen, no, I've seen one image of the stern of it with endurance written there. I was, I was just tearing up seeing it. So I love to tell that story and talk about that boat. I've realized also I can do lots of things on famous sailors. And I'm thinking that I would like to start that by talking about Yves Parlier and the Vendee Globe in 2000. If you don't know that story, it's an amazing story. So there's heaps and heaps of stuff for us to talk about here on the Mariner. But the reality is that it takes a long time to do these things. So what I'm trying to try and do with my business is transition through to where I do a lot more of this stuff. Um, I, I've got new family now. I've got a new little son, Isaac, who's uh, who's here in the world, who doesn't want to have a father who's off over the uh, horizon all the time. I totally understand that. We've also got a new world now where getting insurance for our European registered boats after what's going on in Europe with this conflict between Russia and Ukraine is incredibly complicated. So we've had some ups and downs here at Spartan Command. And what I've realized is that doing the podcast is something I love doing as long as I don't make them too long and uh, and have a really scrappy schedule. So I've uh, the flagship at the moment is uh, <laughs> it's the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. Um, but to support that, yeah, if you go to Patreon, it's $5 a month and it means it's like less than a dime literally per per uh, episode. And I think value for value, I think you can uh, agree that um, that's that's not too bad in the way the modern world works. Um, someone talking, reading a book to you for half an hour for 10 cents is uh, I think that's pretty good value. So, okie dokie, let's uh, let's leave this one here. This was uh, the first half of the um, <laughs> uh, sailing uh, at, in high winds. We didn't know there was going to be a second half. How exciting. Um, we're going to go into a lot more detail next time with exactly what to do with the tactics of the boat, um, strategies with crew, dealing with um, difficulties that arise and trying to plumb the depths of some of this uh, knowledge we know is out there, and how we can use it in a modern situation on a boat at sea. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and well. And uh, if any of you have any connection to anything that's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, my heart felt what can you say about that it's just the just the the worst situation to see like we all thought we got past things like that and for it to be starting up again is is an atrocity um and i hope those who are responsible i hope that uh i hope that I hope that the reality is that we start to find out exactly who caused this. I'm not sure it's quite as clear as the media is pointing out to us at the moment. I think there's a bit more going on. There's a lot of people who for a long time have been making a lot of money out of this kind of misery and it needs to come to an end. When people, when women and children are dying on the streets um, so that rich men elsewhere can make money out of it, then the whole world needs to come together and, and, and stop that shit. So... There we go. I'm off on another tangent, but it's worth saying, isn't it? So I hope that you are well wherever you are. And um, we'll come back to this and talk more about the high winds situations at seas in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>